0: Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andre Degler, and today we are going to discuss some of the biggest funding rounds of the week, some M&A deals, some new VC funds, and a little bit of policy news. Later on we will also hear the voice of Robin Wouters, with whom I will be discussing the fresh state of the European tech report by Atomico. But first, the news. One of the largest funding rounds of the week goes to Katawiki, a Dutch online auction platform that has just raised 150 million euros. Actually, the company calls itself a curated online marketplace for special objects, and it has more than 10 million users interested in buying and or selling those objects. The round was led by private equity firm Permira through its Growth Opportunities Fund. Katawiki was founded in 2008, and uh, the company says that these days more than 65,000 objects are put up for auction on its platform every week. Katawiki is also a really good example of a big, successful tech company that was founded in a pretty small city, and namely the city of Assen in the north of the Netherlands, with a population of just about 70,000 people. Although Katawiki is officially headquartered in Amsterdam right now, as far as I understand, it still has a pretty big office in Assen, which also happens to be a 30-minute drive from where I live, so always happy to report on a good story from the region. Next up, Swedish holding company MTG has acquired Hutch Games, a British developer and publisher of mobile racing titles. The deal is worth 375 million US dollars, of which 275 million will be paid upfront, and the further 100 million is an earn-out payment. Hutch was founded in 2011 in London. It specializes on free-to-play mobile games. The company has over 100 team members, 70 of which are developers. In the first nine months of this year, the company reports 53.6 million US dollars in revenue. TransferWise has gone on a half-year hiring spree, which it says is possible thanks to the company's record growth in 2020. TransferWise has laid out plans to create 750 roles globally over the next six months, of which 175 roles will be based in London. Currently, TransferWise has 2,200 employees across its 14 offices, so we are talking about increasing the headcount by about 30%. Chinese born Swedish entrepreneur Carl Pei, who is now based in London, has raised 7 million US dollars in a seed financing round for his new venture, which will be unveiled in the next few months. Previously, Pei co-founded the smartphone giant OnePlus in 2013 and left the company just two months ago. No word on what exactly he's up to next, but the new thing, whatever it is, is backed by a very impressive list of angel investors, which include iPod inventor Tony Fadell, YouTube star Casey Neistat, uh, Web Summit's Paddy Cosgrave, Reddit CEO Steve Huffman and much more. Israeli fintech company eToro has reportedly entered the Unicorn Club, unnamed sources told Kalkalis Tech. More precisely, the company is said to be valued at 2.5 billion US dollars now, up from 800 million US dollars just two years ago in 2018. A source also revealed that, I quote, eToro's valuation is expected to significantly increase further in its next funding round, the quote ends. The growth in valuation of eToro isn't that surprising, really. Calcalist mentions that, I quote again, the company reported that it experienced a sharp increase in the number of users on its platform since the outbreak of COVID-19 and that the volume of trading in shares tripled compared to the same period last year, the quote ends. So, during the COVID pandemic, everyone wants to trade shares. That's what itora is saying, at least. Highland Europe, a VC firm with dual headquarters in London and Geneva, has closed its fourth fund, raising 700 million euros to invest in startups across the continent. The VC is already building on its own track record of investing in consumer tech brands and software companies such as Brandwatch, ContentSquare, GetYourGuide, Huel, WeTransfer and Vault. And from the department of somewhat surprising finding rounds, a UK-based exclaimer has landed 100 million pounds. What is surprising about it is what the company is doing. If you don't know, I didn't. It is an email signature management platform. As VentureBeat reports, and I quote, Exclaimer's core selling point is that it allows businesses to centrally design and disseminate email signatures to everyone in the company, with consistent footers automatically inserted on all company emails across devices. The signatures can also be tailored for specific teams and individuals, with admins able to control everything from a centralized dashboard, the quote ends. Exclaimer was founded all the way back in 2001 in Farnborough. These days, it has 40,000 customers in 150 countries, and these customers include Sony, Cisco, Mattel, UNICEF, NBC, and the BBC, and some of these customers, apparently, are holding licenses for more than 300,000 users. If you've been to conferences, and it doesn't really matter whether it's online or offline conference, big or small, chances are that you know what Slido is. And if the name does not ring a bell, it is an audience interaction platform for things like polls, Q&A sessions, and so on, which, which supposedly increase audience engagement. This week Slido, which is headquartered in Slovakia, was acquired by, guess who, Cisco. Slido will be integrated into the Cisco Webex conferencing platform, but at the same time it will still be available as a standalone solution. The terms of the deal were not disclosed, but I think it's also worth mentioning that in 8 years, since Slido was founded, it seems only to have raised a seed round of €30,000 back in 2013. And here comes the promised policy news. A French data protection regulator, CNIL, has slapped Google and Amazon with new hefty fines for invading users' privacy. And namely, CNIL fined Google 100 million euros and Amazon 35 million euros and ordered the companies to start clearly telling users why they track them. Per a report by Fortune, and I quote, In both cases, CNIL said the companies had illegally deposited tracking cookies in users' browsers without their prior consent, while failing to clearly disclose to the users it was leaving the cookies in order to show them personalized ads. In September, both companies stopped automatically leaving advertising cookies on the devices of visitors to their French sites. But CNIL said they still don't explicitly tell their French users how the cookies will be used and that they can refuse them. Google and Amazon now have three months in which to get in line with CNIL's demands, otherwise they will face daily fines of €100,000. The quote ends. These were some of the most notable tech news stories of this week, and now it is time to talk about the recent State of European Tech report by Atomico. And for that, for the first time in many months, I am joined again on this podcast by our founding editor, Robin Wouters. Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for coming on, and I'm very happy to have you on the
1: show. Hey, not my fault, fault of the coronavirus, Um, but uh, yeah, always, always good to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: So many things in 2020 are going to be blamed on Corona, but I don't think everything is its fault, you know.
1: Well, this one definitely is because it was out for like a month and a half.
0: Yeah, that was I've been listening scary.
1: to the podcast, so that's something. <laughs>
0: and now you have it also reading the report because I, di- I didn't read it. I, on- I only uh, made it through the executive summary so far and it's it's a massive thing.
1: It is a massive thing. So kudos to Atomico and, and their data partners as well for, uh, for putting this together. I think it's absolutely fantastic that they do this every year because it also shows that you if you do this consistently you can really spot trends you can you can really see the evolution uh the good and the bad uh you know so and and also the event that they had uh, accompanying the launch of the the report was was absolutely fantastic so really really appreciate that they're doing this uh to complement the work that that many many of us are doing uh, including uh, at EU. but yeah there, there's a, a number of things that that I think are highlighted in the report that well, most of the things highlighted in the report show a very, very optimistic outlook and a very positive uh, outlook on, on on the current state and the future of the European tech ecosystem. But there's also quite a lot of um, problems, I would say, that are being highlighted by the data, both the data and also the survey results, because they, they also ran a survey with, uh, with founders and investors and whatnot. Uh, so it highlights some of the issues as well, which I think is equally important. Yeah, right. The the numbers are generally
0: positive. I agree. I I really uh, liked uh, I really liked most of them. I I, I have a lot of uh, questions. Like not a lot, but a few questions uh, as well. But maybe we uh, will have time to get to them a bit later if I if I can discuss them with you. But uh, so far, so what were your highlights behind beyond the numbers?
1: Yeah, some, some of the, the highlights that I noted. Again, I'm, I'm focusing on the, on the problems here, the, the less positive side, because it's easy to celebrate when you look at the the report and you look at the numbers, but it's equally uh, difficult to find, you know, really what's, what's, systematic or systemic issues within the ecosystem that are very, very difficult to solve, which are not always easy to see in, in, in data and numbers, right? Uh, so one of these things that I really wanted to highlight was um, the fact that they they ran a survey um, for startup founders, and when they asked to share the three biggest challenges uh, that these founders have personally experienced over the past 12 months, of course, COVID was a factor in this, but the most frequently cited challenge uh, was maintaining their mental, mental well-being, right? So, so mental health is something that that we and, and, and I've been talking about for so long, for so many years, uh, how important it is for founders to keep that in check and to talk about it and to to share with others and to to really, you know, see this sort of as a as a form of therapy to talk about. Uh, these things with their peers as well, uh, and also discuss it on stages at conferences, which is very rarely the case. But it's it's clear that a year like this, when when it's very challenging and difficult, um, you know, to keep motivating your team to encourage, to raise funding, you know, challenging for a lot of reasons, and it only you know, adds to the problem, which I think is something that we need to take into account. And I'd love to see a little bit more research on that aspect in, in future reports. So Atomico, if you're listening, that's something that I think should be highlighted a bit more. And then the other aspect that I think that's, that's not so related to numbers, uh, but but something that I think is incredibly prob- problematic, and I think everyone will agree on this, is the the problem that we have with diversity. Uh, diversity, not just in gender, but also, you know, socioeconomic, uh, ethnic profile, uh, sexual orientation, all of the, the aspects that come with diversity is a problem in Europe. Um, I read that the progress on on gender diversity uh, stagnated this year, according to the report. And as we all know, if it stagnates, it's, it's going backwards in reality. Um, I read that all male teams have captured 90.8% of all the capital raised. 90.8, that's 91% of all the capital raised, and 85% of all rounds. So that's, that's, I think is incredibly discouraging uh, to see that it's still so difficult to be a woman in tech, even in Europe or or, or anyone from an ethnic minority or, or whatever, and, and still face that many problems and hurdles along the way. I think that's,
0: that's it. It's kind of it's kind of surprising to me at least because I think this year I have seen more conversations about uh, diversity and inclusion uh, uh, on uh, the basis of uh, gender and uh, race and uh, every uh, every in every way possible I think we have talked about it more than uh, in the years before and, but how come that it does not actually come to any sort of uh, action?
1: It has been a big topic of discussion. And of course, with, with movements like Black Lives Matter and all that, it becomes more of a topic of of discussion. But because it's such a systemic issue, that is very structural and very, very historical. It's very, very difficult to see that change in numbers. Maybe over time we will. I can only hope that we will. But um, but it's very discouraging. So, so, for example, the report when asked about whether they think that the European tech ecosystem is fair to people from all demographics and backgrounds and experience, like Most of the survey participants actually disagreed, right? So they voiced concerns over over inequalities, proving that it's all the more urgent for us to act and not just talk about it. While 40% of men uh, respondents believe that equal opportunity is available to everyone, only 19% of women share the same sentiment. So there's also a disconnect in the way that we as white men think about this problem and the way that... You know, people that are actually going through these challenges actually experience experience it, right? So another stat, 59% of Black, African, and Caribbean women and men uh, have experienced discrimination in some form in the last 12 months. 59%. Uh, Last year, 31% of underrepresented founders found it hard to fundraise, This year, that number was up with 31%. So 62% of the respondents find it more challenging to raise venture capital on average. That's due to COVID, of course, but that's also because it it is a problem and it is a big problem as well.
0: So now they just get discriminated uh, on Zoom. I guess yeah
1: <laughs> I mean it's it's funny and it's not but yeah the discrimination just shifts right so it becomes that much more harder for people who already are having a hard time navigating their way through this world which which I think is very yeah. very dispiriting yeah exactly yeah it's
0: it's, 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 not, it's not, not funny at all but yeah that's uh, uh, that, that was my point i think it's actually sort of easier in a way to discriminate against uh, uh, people uh, if you don't if you don't face them right
1: yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Because we keep saying, like, with all these remote meetings and remote funding and, and, and all that, you know, that it levels the playing field. But the reality is that there is still still a lot of, well, underrepresentation of these people. And and, and that's clearly not changing. So the numbers show stagnation, which I think is, you know, even if it showed a, a small increase, I'd be very, very worried and concerned. So this is very, yeah. very disencouraging. say. So then when you look at the the actual numbers, uh, maybe just to change the topic uh, a little bit, uh, we're going to have record funding level in Europe by the end of this year um, with reporting lag. Um, it's going to come out to about I would say $40 to $41 um, billion dollars in total, which is a lot. Um, so for Europe, that's going to be another record year. That's Encouraging, of course, that's good news. Uh, The numbers keep going up and to the right, which is sort of expected, but still nice to see, especially because it was a very challenging year uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, But then the problem with that is that this record funding level in Europe still is only about 20% of uh, all the funding recorded in North America, right? So it's still only one fifth. Um, U.S. technology companies still attract more than half of all venture capital investment globally. And that's despite accounting for 26% of global GDP. And being home to just five percent of the world's population, uh, the report uh, notes. And although Europe accounts for around about a quarter of global GDP, its share of global tech uh, VC investment was only thirteen percent. So, so those are numbers that, if you if you look at it on its own in isolation, they look very good. If you put them in a, in a broader global con- context, then you know it's still a, a long way to go.
0: Uh, by the way, speaking of numbers, am I the only one who doesn't uh, quite understand why all the all the money amounts are expressed in U.S. dollars in the report?
1: Um, not really. I think it's because it's easier to then make those comparisons with uh, with global uh, funding levels. I think they they also okay. do this in Asia, so I think it's just for consistency' sake. Easy yeah, to could be easy to convert in any case. Um, And then you can also see that the rounds are getting bigger, which is something that of course we know, uh, bigger rounds, bigger mega rounds, bigger valuations, but there's been not that much growth in early stage funding, which I think is the the one thing that I wanted to highlight from this, this very optimistic and very positive talk about all the funding that's going to European tech companies is that, you know, there is pressure on early stage funding. You know, Series A, Series B is still relatively difficult to get. And that's also where the pressure has been most of the year uh, due to COVID. We're still seeing big rounds. We're still seeing funds, you know, VC firms raising new funds. Um, But early stage startups still have a, a relatively tough time getting the the funding that they need. Then the report also focused sort of on (laughs) population adjusted or, uh, as they say, per capita uh, basic Mm -hmm. um, basis for geographic spread of funding, which, in my very humble opinion, is essentially uh, useless to look at because it's one of these nice-to-know things um, that I think countries have... You know, they, they want to sort of um, boast about their numbers by looking at the only per capita in Estonia and Sweden come out high. But at the end of the day, I don't think, you know, that's, that's a story on its own. What I think is a story and that's also something that the report clearly shows that if you look at the country by country trends on a year uh, by year basis, then France is actually the only one of Europe's three largest markets to grow in 2020. So even the UK and Germany had difficulty sort of maintaining the same level of growth in 2020, despite, you know, the, the headline numbers and the record numbers that we're going to have in total. Um, the other aspect is that the Central Eastern uh, Europe is, is severely underserved when it comes to capital. So much talent there, so much innovation. Um, you're from Ukraine yourself, you know that in the region there's so much moving, uh, but capital is still, still very hard to come by um which is sort of also weird because we keep talking about yeah but now we have UiPath in Romania and you see you can build these companies anywhere you have Vinted in Vilnius Lithuania and um uh, but it it really sort of hides the fact that that a lot of capital is never going to reach um, thousands and thousands of families. that I think if they were just in a in a different ecosystem they have no problem getting funded.
0: Yeah I've just I've just been talking on a panel uh, to uh, to Carlos from uh, SeedCamp, and uh, uh, we did uh, uh, talk about this more like a European uh, sort of ecosystem rather than the ecosystem of Central and Eastern Europe and the other parts. So it's really nice to be able to talk about it. It's really nice to say that we are all, the world citizens, the parts of uh, one big ecosystem, and there is no huge difference whether you're building up your company in Romania or in the UK. But seems like the report is not really back in this
1: no, it's, uh, you know, Europe is a collection of ecosystems and then and, and each one of them has their own opportunities and challenges as always. And, you know, Atomico has this, I think, even the tagline, like, you know, great companies can come from anywhere. And I, I very much sort of disagree with that. Like, great founders can come from anywhere and great companies can be born anywhere. I agree with that part, but you can't scale companies all that well just staying in those, those smaller nations. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that UiPath is is, is headquartered yeah. in the U.S. now, right? So so it's sort of you know one, they, one of
0: uh, one of one of many really
1: one of many uh, I'm sure one of many
0: European companies headquartered in the U.S. these days.
1: Yeah, true. Uh, which also brings me seamlessly to the next point, uh, which is the one of exits, right? And then you sl- you look at you know things like M and A and IPOs, and what the report highlights is that there is a significant and this is a problem that's that's you know everybody knows this. There there is a problem with liquidity, right? And uh, there's also a problem with value leakage, and I'll explain in, the, in in just a bit. So, so when we talk about value leakage, right? So you have you look at the exits of um, you know unicorns, the plus one billion dollar valued VC backed European companies. Most of these companies choose the U.S. to list you know you have us listings and MA buyers accounting for about 52% of total exit value uh, this year mm. that's more than half uh, and even though europe has produced more tech ipos than the us every year for the over the period from 2016 up until now so more IPOs, but the big ones always, always happening in the U.S., whether it's on New York Stock Exchange or on Nasdaq, that's usually where the big ones happen, right? So that they don't pick Europe for that kind of listings. And it shows in the numbers. That means the money is also going overseas. That means the money is not necessarily going back to the community where these companies were started and, and built and scaled from, right? So so that's that's value leakage. That's money that's supposed to stay in Europe that going, going to the U.S. Um, and uh, the report highlights that we do have a pipeline. There's an IPO candidates valued at about 150 billion dollars in total, um, and mm-hmm. we've had some successes like Allegro and the HUD Group uh, this year. Uh, but Europe seen far far fewer IPOs than the U.S. this year, and only three at more than a billion dollars. And if you really yeah. look at the largest tech IPO in the year, was Snowflake, uh, which reached about 70 billion dollars at the end of its first day of trading. That's value that tops more than the top ten European tech IPOs combined. So, so those those differences in numbers are, are quite huge. And this is before, by the way, Airbnb is starting to trade. I think today we're recording this on Thursday. Um, so uh, Airbnb is going to top that number for for Snowflake as well. So it's, it's oh, yes. even worse. So, and if you take all everything together, the total value of uh, of public European tech companies is about one point two trillion dollars. And that places Europe at a distant third place behind the U.S. and China. So, that, And that's only 6.3% of the total global tech market cap, right? So that's, that's a very, very low number. Uh, the U.S. has about four tech companies valued in excess of $1 trillion. Uh, China's two largest companies are worth a combined $1.5 trillion. So that's more than the total value of all European pop- tech public tech companies so you can see that this is an issue like this this is going to be one of the most talked about problems hopefully in the next few years is where do these companies go after they scale you know they're maturing they're raising more funding they're raising more mega rounds but what happens next where do they list where does uh you know the liquidity go
0: but I think the report was even still positive on this uh, particular part, saying that there probably will be more, uh, more uh, IPO activity uh, in the years to come, and next year in particular, after uh, the lockdowns are over. Do you actually agree with this? Because I'm not really sure I see uh, why it would be like that.
1: No, I agree. I agree, but I just don't think these companies will be listing in Europe. That's the that, <laughs> that that's the issue, right? So, it's, uh, I mean, the report says so. Five times more likely for public European tech companies valued over one billion dollars and founded after two thousand to list on U.S. exchanges. So that's where they go. That's where the big companies go to list their shares, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But uh, I'm just not sure why. Is there is there just no
0: money in Europe? Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with public markets, uh, but uh, I'm I'm not I'm not sure I understand the sort
1: of underlying reason. Yeah, I mean, lots of reasons. I think it's it's a matter of fragmentation. So th- there is no European stock exchange. There's a few, and they they have like they cover different regions, of course. Uh, but they all compete with one another, and they don't compete on a scale like Nasdaq and then the Y and the NYSE are doing, right? So. It's also a, a matter of um, how should I put this. So, so the, the retail investors that are putting money into tech companies need to know what they're getting into, and because we have a fragmentation of, of European tech companies, an investor, a retail investor in France, may not know anything about the German market. So so when a company makes it big in Germany, they're they're relatively uh, well known within financial uh, services industries, but it doesn't necessarily translate across borders, right? So so there's very very little appetite for. Uh, for these retail investors to invest in European tech companies. So so I think, and then again, like the, the Nasdaq and the New York Stock Exchange are so used to get, to handling big tech IPOs that it's also a matter of experience. The companies yeah. know that they, they'll be treated in a way that, that speaks with experience, right? So it's not just a number, but also being able to handle and deal with these, these large ticket uh, IPOs.
0: It is true, but at, uh, I mean, it, it's a good point about fragmentation and about uh, the French investors who don't really know what, uh, what German market is like. But at the same time, The US uh, IPO market also has its issues, right? For example, the fact that most of those uh, IPOs uh, pop at the first day and uh, basically founders do tend to leave uh, some money on the table because of that. And this, as far as I understand, may not be the case, uh, for example, if they list in the UK just because of uh, uh, different uh, sort of regulations and different uh, way they prepare to list.
1: That might be true. I'm not, I'm not painting myself as an expert on, on on trading and stock exchanges either. But yeah, that, that might be that, that might be true. Yeah.
0: So yeah, maybe at some point it will change.
1: And by the way, when you list your shares for the first time, you know, your, your shares are trading on a public market and your shares pop, what, 60, 70 percent? I mean, someone did not do their job very well. That's not supposed to happen. And that's not I think good for a lot of reasons. Um, you sort of want to avoid that kind of surprises for a lot of reasons, but that's that's very very technical and complicated to get into. And I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not an expert. Um, but these pops, these these very very big uh, increases in in values, you know, very quickly, uh, tend to mean that someone didn't do their homework, right?
0: Yeah, but the thing is, it just it just keeps happening. And because uh, we had this uh, episode uh, when I talked about uh, SPACs uh, after a, a conversation with somebody who was uh, uh, very deep into this topic. And there was this uh, piece of stats that so, so many uh, IPOs in the US uh, pop quite a bit and compared to the UK, where it almost doesn't happen and not even close to the scale at which it happens in the US.
1: Could be that these companies are just more... Famous, well-known, <laughs> you know, and bigger, uh, that they also get more coverage. But yeah, I mean, it is definitely notable. Uh, and then when you look at m a that's also a bit of a problem. Uh, of course, the aggregate value of exits of European tech companies, according to the Atomico report, uh, via merger acquisitions, uh, exceeded about $90 billion uh, by the end of September 2020, when they stopped, um, uh, you know, an- analyzing the data. Uh, that's going to be the strongest year since 2016, but it's still... Compared to other regions uh, in the world, uh, it's still very, very low. Um, the trend over time also shows that while North American buyers have accounted for a relatively steady share of MA exit volume, uh, they have been responsible for a growing share of total exit value over the past five years, though a few larger MA transactions led by European buyers have shifted the dial back somewhat in 2020. So you can sort of see that corporate um, corporations in Europe that are big enough to make big ticket acquisitions are becoming a little bit more active but nowhere near the level that it should be right so so that's there, there's very few exit options for european tech companies while well, there should be many or at least as many as for for us companies so that's that I think is a problem that was highlighted in the report
0: Yeah, and it's kind of strange. It brings uh, brings, uh, one of the questions that uh, I had initially after reading the uh, first uh, pages of the report is uh, one of the points that uh, is made there is that U.S. companies fail faster uh, than European uh, companies, and uh, U.S. companies are 50% more likely to exit after a first round of funding than European companies. But at the same time, now we're saying that, uh, that there are no exits which is supposed to be not great according to this part but also i have heard so many times over the past uh, months and years uh the last one being uh, daniel Eck uh, in his uh, talk at that uh, slush event where he said that it is a bad thing that european uh, founders tend to sell too early and not to realize the potential uh, that uh, their companies have so i'm not really I'm not really sure, like what's uh, what is actually the problem here—that we don't have exits or that we do exit too early.
1: Yeah, yeah that's a fair point. I, I think what uh, Atomico meant when they said "fail faster" wasn't actually failing, uh, but selling faster, which you can argue that sometimes that's a, that's a failure, sometimes that's a win, uh, depending on the situation and the context. So, so I think that the wording was a bit um, was a bit. Poorly chosen, let's say, um, but uh, but it is absolutely true that, that that you know there haven't been a lot of exits, and you can exit for for a small amount; it'll be good for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing for for the ecosystem, investors, your employees, and that's that's where it should be. You know, you, you need to look at the bigger picture in that sense. Um, so we we need more exits, and we need bigger ones. Period.
0: <laughs> well, maybe we will have that uh, SPAC frenzy coming to Europe at some point. Maybe that will.
1: Give yeah, us some more. yeah. The, the report only notes uh, the one from Arrival, uh, the UK uh, electric vehicle maker. But there, this week I, there was another one. I um, actually forget the name. Uh, but there was another one that's going to probably. Oh to yeah, happen. yeah, I read it. Yeah.
0: yeah so but those are still American specs, anyway.
1: Those are American specs, as most of the the M and A activity is going to be from North America. It's just going to be that way for a while. Um, so those are some of the highlights that I uh, seen in the report. Uh, there's another few, um, I, I'd love to mention, that, like Europe, uh, for example, has now seen $1 billion tech companies or more, so unicorns, uh, emerge from 24 countries all around the region. And they they paint this sort of as a good thing, but I mentioned this before, it's not because one or two are coming from, I don't know, a list of 10, 12 countries that that's, means that means that the overall he- ecosystems are all, always healthy, right? So... It doesn't matter if you're a Romanian founder, having a UI path is nice to look at. It's a clear example of what what, uh, what could be true. But if you're still having trouble raising your first round of funding because there's just no capital available, it's just like very few avenues for you to raise funding, then that doesn't really move the needle for your business, right? So it all comes down to what's actually going to be the picture in the, in the next few years, which I'm looking forward to future reports, of course, like everyone else. But, but I wouldn't say that, you know, having unicorns in 24 countries is a success on its own. It's only if that trend continues. And if you get more um, coming consistently from all of these countries that you can speak of a success, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Mm. But do you think, do you think the European money actually help with this uh, lack
1: of uh, early stage funding? I don't know. That's, uh, that's, I think it's a topic for a different discussion. But it, do, it, it does bring me to the, the, the sort of the, the element of uh, policy and regulation that was also touched upon um, in the report. And that's, it was quite extraordinary. So get this. Uh, let me look it up. So only 20% of the founders and investors that they surveyed uh, believe that the concerns of startups and scale ups are being heard by European policymakers. So that's leaving aside the funding question, right? So basically, yeah. 20% of the people that they surveyed says we're not being heard by by policymakers over in Brussels, which I think is insane. By the way, I have a bit a bit of a contrarian view on this because I also think it's mostly their fault. Um, of <laughs> course, of course, the European institutions do need to do a bit of better job at advertising what they do and how they can help and how they can fund these companies or fund the VC firms that will end up funding their companies. But it's it's a two way street, right? So investors and entrepreneurs also need to enter into dialogue. There's multiple avenues to do that. You don't start talking to policymakers only when you need them or when there's a problem that arises. It's the same like when you talk MA, you start talking to potential acquirers way before you actually think you're going to have an acquisition because you want to build relationships over time. And I think the same should go for, for people in the policy space. So I'm hoping that Bridge gets... Um, sort of crossed more and more because I felt it was changing. But 20, 20% of survey surveyed founders is, is uh, very little, I would say. Uh, and then also close to 65% of founders were not aware of Horizon Europe. So Horizon Europe is uh, the, the framework program uh, that I'm sure you know. It delivers up to 100 billion euros in funding uh, over the next uh, seven years. So it launches in 2021 and then it goes on for another seven years. So it's... Uh, the successor, I would say, of uh, Horizon uh, 2020. That's 100 billion euros in funding and 65% of the founders in the survey were not aware of it. Yeah, you can argue, yeah, the European Commission has to market it better and it's uh, it's mostly for science and deep tech. It's not for everyone. And that's all true. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, as a founder, you also have a responsibility to, to look into every single option of funding to accelerate your business. And if you didn't do that properly, then you're part of that 65%, I would say.
0: Yeah, but I also think it's a. It also it shows a little bit of the general disconnect uh, between and uh, nation states and Brussels. It's not. It's not just because the founders not, are not aware of something that policymakers are doing, but it's also that founders in in in, the, in their countries they probably are more aware of local initiatives uh, to help uh, entrepreneurs and less aware of uh, whatever is going on uh, uh, in the European Commission, the European Parliament.
1: Absolutely true. Um, I'm, I'm not here to defend the European Commission, but- what I will say is that they have they have good intentions for the most part. I think they're they're really doing a good job at looking at different stages of companies. make sure that they don't only support companies that are already growing in the UK, France and Germany, for example. No, they do take into account that there's different regions in Europe with different needs, you know that you have different problems in different uh, regions as well that they need to be addressed. so so they're quite aware of that, which I think is a good thing. It's hard to
0: live in Brussels and not to defend the European Commission, is it?
1: It's uh, very easy to live in Brussels and not defend the European Commission, <laughs> depending <laughs> where you're coming from. Uh, but it, that's the thing: like, you live in Brussels and you you think you you, you know you, you're not really part of the bubble. It's very very separate separated even here. I think the local tech community in Brussels doesn't engage with the European Commission institutions either. Like I, I think the percentage would be as high if you would survey the founders in in Brussels and the ones in in the rest of Europe. Right.
0: And uh, maybe to wrap it up and uh, to stay on the topic of policymakers, did you watch the event uh, where the report was presented? I did. Did you listen to the conversation at the end uh, with the the French president, Emmanuel Macron?
1: I unfortunately had to sign off uh, right in the middle of their conversation. But yeah, I've seen Macron uh, speak uh, live and I've seen him in action before. So I know he knows actually the topic quite well, but he is and he will always be a politician. So you know, it's sort of a carefully worded approach to innovation and entrepreneurship um, that, you know, he didn't say anything new either. So so it was a good conversation. It was interesting to watch, but...
0: But do you think there is just a, like the some sort of certain? But there is certain a signal maybe in the fact that he even appeared in this particular event. Uh, is it? Does it actually mean that uh, the policymakers on the national state levels are becoming closer maybe to the uh, to the tech ecosystem? It's
1: definitely a good sign. I have no inside information. Before I, from what I heard, it was. The cabinet of Macron, who actually invited Nicholas Sandstrom to come over to the LECA in Paris to talk about the report and not the other way around. So, if that's true, that's uh, quite impressive, I would say.
0: All right. Yeah, totally agree. Okay. So, Robin Evert, the optimist, uh, went through the whole report uh, to see the issues and uh, okay. highlight them and make sure that.
1: <laughs> Listen, like being optimistic is easy. I think it's, it's also quite, quite necessary to look at the problems and to, to acknowledge them, to, to point them out. And then we can look for solutions jointly, like with everyone else uh, together, working towards a better future for Europe. I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but that's, you know, it's the reality. It's not, it's, it, it's not, never going to be, you know, rainbows and sunshine and th- there's always going to be issues. So addressing them is starts with identifying them. Right?
0: Okay. So we've got another year to work and to see uh, how it gets reflected in next year's report.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me rant about uh, <laughs> about Europe once again.
0: Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Talk yes, soon. Bye. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast.tech.eu. I will talk to you again next week. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend and take care. Bye-bye.